The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein live from New York. Um, we have a, a unusual program today for you, and it is going to inject a bit of levity associated with the approaching holiday, holiday of Halloween, I guess the connection between archaeology and Halloween is really not as obtuse as one might think. There is a connection clearly with bodies and spirits and ceremonialism and to some degree, of course, horror. So what we've decided to do is to bring in an expert on these topics. It's a little bit unusual, but I think it's, it'll be very, very informative. My guest is Kendall Phillips, who is a professor of communication and rhetorical studies and uh, teaches at Syracuse University. His research concentrates on rhetorical dimensions of popular and political culture, and we'll get into that, with a focus on the place of the horror film in, in American culture. Uh, he's the author of several books, uh, most recently a volume called Modern Horror Film. He received his Ph.D. from Penn State University, and in addition to teaching at, Syria, at Syracuse University, he has uh, honorary positions at Massey University in New Zealand and York St. John's University in the U.K. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Phillips. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, listen, it's a great honor opportunity for us to explore some issues that are related to archaeology in a very unique way. How can you how did you get into this entire topic of horror and movies and uh, transform that rather than transforming it directly into a film specialty, getting into the entire question of horror and its its place in 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 culture? No, it's a good question. I, actually, I kind of came at things backwards. Uh, my primary interest really started with political controversy, and I was interested in the kinds of things that make people upset enough that they go on the picket line or they you know, write letters to the editor. Uh, and I found that, as strange as it might seem, there's a long history of people protesting films. And within that area, it was often the violent or the horror film that, that raised people's ire. Uh, so as I started studying the political controversy, that led me back to the films, and that's what led me here. 
That is fascinating. Now let's talk about that a little bit. Political. It's so. It's also so. There's a political stance that one takes with respect to film. How far back are we going here? And and what element in the history of film are we talking about? So uh, all the way back to the 1890s. You know, so the, perf- the first public screening of a film is in 18, nine, late 1895. Uh, by the late, you know, 1896 and they're popping up around America, usually at vaudeville halls. Uh, or at carnivals, or you know, kind of as a, a kind of attraction, people come to see just the film. Uh, but by 1905, you've got movie theaters in New York and Pittsburgh popping up, largely in uh, lower class, working class, and ethnic neighborhoods. Uh, so it was really seen. Early films were seen as kind of low class entertainment, and so you know, not surprisingly, the the kind of elite uh, guardians of public morality quickly became concerned with the kinds of films people were seeing. They were seeing romances, they were seeing crime films, they were seeing violent films. And so this led to the beginning of a long series of political battles about how we were going to regulate the public screens. And so that led to the censorship and the production code and all those sorts of things that defined American filmmaking. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. So the earliest horror films, I assume, are silent era films, uh, things like Dr. Caligari and and some of the earlier Dracula movies. Is that is that correct? Is that what it we're is, talking about? It's a little bit of a tricky question, uh, not to be annoyingly academic about it, but the the first time the term horror film really enters popular usage is 1931. Uh, after Dracula appears and is enormously successful, uh, and as people are preparing for Frankenstein, which would go on to be even more successful. So that's when they start using the term horror film. It really locks in, and then the, the genre, the language, people know what a horror film is. All that happens after 1931. All of the elements that we think of as being part of horror, the ghost, the vampire, the monster, the haunted house, all those sorts of things, appear as early as 1896. Right. So there's a kind of prehistory of horror where it's circulating and the films are there and people watch them and they like them and they, they know what they are. And then suddenly the language locks in and then you get what is more classically defined as the horror film, really starting in 31 and going all the way to today. So they're four years into the talkies here. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, there's a wonderful book by a great scholar named Robert Spadoni, uh, and mm-hmm. I think he's arguably very right. And he makes the argument that one of the reasons Dracula and Frankenstein become so enormously successful is because audiences are just, are, we're still getting used to the idea of synchronized sound. I mean, you know, movies were never silent. I mean, there was always, uh, you know, the, the organ player and a lot of right. big movie yeah. palaces had sound effects. But the idea that when people spoke, their, their lips moved and you heard a sound was kind of uncanny to people. It was a very different viewing experience. And so Spadoni argues, and, and I think he's got some, some good uh, evidence for it, that that was part of what made audiences feel a little creepy when they saw a film like Dracula and Frankenstein. Okay. So, but, but there were elements of horror in the, in the silent movies, no question. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. uh, the, arguably the first sort of film with horror elements was a Georges Méliès film called right. Haunted Castle that appears in 1896. So this is just really just several months into the projection of movies, you've got the first film that has all of the classic motifs. Uh, it's got a castle, it's got ghosts, it's got a giant bat, it's got witches, and all the things we would come to think of as being part right. of, of horror. Because you were so you're mentioning that then all of a sudden it got involved in the censorship and the production codes, and I'm assuming you're referring to the Hayes Commission, right? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Which so is that big, that gives when, you a three. That gives you a three-year window, basically, right? For, for, from what you're saying, because if it started in '31, I think that was '33 or '34, right? There was an early version of the production code actually a little before 1931, so it started in 1929, but it really starts getting enforced later in the 30s, so you're absolutely right. Right, right. so then all this... Interesting. Uh, oh, yeah, so go, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, go I was ahead, just say, One of the things that's interesting is, so Dracula and Frankenstein are released in 1931. Most of the censorship boards, even the state boards, don't care because these are fantasy monsters, so that they're not concerned about that element. When the films are re-released in 1938, and this is during the kind of high production uh, code you're talking about, the Hayes Code, when they released in 1938, they enforced a whole series of cuts from the film because suddenly the films were too graphic, too scary, too dangerous for audiences to see, even though it's seven years after they debuted. I see, I see. And uh, were, uh, you know, the big stars of the time, Lugosi and Karloff, they, were, uh, they started in the silent era, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Bela Lugosi had, had done a little bit of film work, but he was actually most known for doing Dracula on Broadway in New York. Right, um, right. But Karloff, and certainly the bigger star that, that really would have been, actually would have been cast as Dracula, was Lon Chaney, who was the Man of a Thousand Faces and all the Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame and all these iconic figures. Um, he was actually going to be cast as Dracula, but he developed cancer and died. Right. And that was part of why Dracula went from being, it was originally envisioned as being more like the novel, a big sort of sweeping adventure. And because of the Great Depression and the loss of their star, they boiled it down to, you know, people see Dracula now. It's a pretty stagnant, still stage-like film, but, but still very creepy and very powerful. Yeah, it was pretty creepy, and it was very powerful. And then uh, I'm, I'm curious about the censorship element of it. Was it the horror itself, or was it just uh, a variety of different types of, let's call them cultural mores that were associated with that um, horror, sex, violence, that sort of thing? It was sort of a melange of all that? There were really three things that both Dracula and Frankenstein and other films faced in the late, when they were kind of re-released or in the later 30s, uh, one was sexuality. Clearly, uh, yeah. The second was uh, the violence, and in particular, one scene that was cut, if, if people have seen Frankenstein, or if you haven't, go out and watch it, uh, there's a scene where uh, Fritz, who is the kind of Igor character, is, is whipping <laughs> the monster, and that was too graphic. And then the third that I think is quite interesting was the religion aspect, uh, Frankenstein actually added a, a pre-film speech. So before the film started, the producer comes out and gives this little curtain speech about how what people are about to see is not really about religion. It's about, you know, it's, it's still about God being good, right? You know, so there was this great anxiety that films that dealt with the supernatural were somehow going to undermine this traditional Judeo-Christian mentality that the production code was very much built to maintain. And that's where it gets, that's where it sort of starts to overlap with mores and with values. And exactly. uh, from what you're saying, obviously, it led to a very interesting specialization in, in academia and film. So if you were to characterize the connection, this is a tough question, but, but, but you seem to uh, sort of house yourself in, in this to some degree. How do you connect that with anthropology and human culture and, 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 and what its impact was? Obviously, it is the, you, you brought up the political issue 
when you mention that, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking of protests uh, in the 30s, obviously American involvement, World War II. But was it related to those types of issues, or what kind of other issues was it, was it related to? Yeah, I think, so I think there are two answers, two sides of that coin. It's a very good coin to, to pull out here. One side is, I would say, almost the kind of, if you will, timeless, you know, from a kind of anthropological or, or folklore studies, the, the horror film functions in ways very similar to legends and myths and fairy tales. Um, they almost always construct this kind of unnatural monster, and the monster sits at the boundaries of public mores and acceptability. You know, so don't go into the woods, don't do that thing, don't break this sacred law, or the, the evil monster will get you. And so you, you can sort of see horror films kind of continuing that tradition that really goes back as, as far as uh, human history. Then the other part of that, which is the part that's most interesting to me, is the way that that core, if you will, mythology of the monstrous entity keeps evolving to be relevant to changing historical periods. So Dracula and Frankenstein, for instance, you know, are, are two of the first films in, in American popular culture that really embrace the idea of a supernatural monster. Mm-hmm. Most American films before that had been, I call it the Scooby-Doo effect. It, it looks like a monster, <laughs> but at the end of the movie, you pull the mask off, and it's Mr. Jenkins who was trying to steal the crown jewels or whatever they were trying to do. Right, uh, right. Dracula and Frankenstein are really the first films in, in many years in American popular culture that just come out immediately with the idea that these are supernatural entities. So the world is kind of turned upside down. The living are the dead are now living. Uh, they've come to consume the living. All these sorts of um, reversals of cultural, traditional, logical categories. And if you think about 1931, this is arguably one of the worst years in American history. It's, it's the mm-hmm. worst year of the Great Depression. Uh, we're still reeling from the effects of the First World War. And arguably, it's already becoming clear to people that the First World War did not end the problem in Europe, but the troubles are continuing. So from an American kind of cultural psyche, that period in 1931 is a very dark period, and American audiences were drawn to two things, monsters and Shirley Temple. And I can, I can explain the monster part. I can't help with the Shirley Temple. Okay. Uh, well, the monster. Well, well, you're you're talking about something that I think actually they they seem to have something in common. I mean, thirty one is sort of uh, when everybody said, you know, who the the biggest monster was probably Herbert Hoover, and uh, really. And then the other thing that I would love for you to explain to me is then all of a sudden this fascination with the Dracula and 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 the monsters and uh, the clear association of these folks with. Central Europe and and um, Hungary, Romania, the Carpathian Mountains. That's that's where all that yeah. stuff sort of emanates. If if you're just sort of a, a, a let's call it call it a casual uh, movie buff, which is what I would consider myself. So how do you merge those two together? I think I think the the central monsters at the root, you know, Draco and Frankenstein, are, are, are really complicated and dense, you know, cultural meaning, dense with cultural meaning. But but certainly you're picking up on what must have been part of you know in the air. One was the the really dramatic concern about immigration in America in the 1930s, particularly immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, the Eastern and Southern Europeans were portrayed as uh, you know superstitious as. Per- as practicing a kind of exaggerated form of Catholicism, uh, as not learning the language, you know, these, all these things that sound familiar to us even today in 2015. Uh, they do. But, they do, yes. 
and, and certainly, you know, the Balkan Peninsula had been the root of all the previous problems of the First World War, and so you're talking about the same general region of the world now kind of identified as the location of all of these problems. The, the other quick thing I would say is if you think about Dracula and Frankenstein, they are kind of, if you will, two sides of the same coin. Dracula is very much about something from our past returning, something that we didn't believe in or didn't think was still around returning. So Dracula is a vampire, and modern people don't believe in vampires, but here he is. Right. Frankenstein, on the other hand, is kind of the opposite. It's a narrative of progress. It is science gone too far. And, of course, in the industrial, industrializing America of the 1930s, where you're suddenly having urbanization and industrialization, that mm-hmm. probably also resonated with American audiences who said, how far can all this technology go? Right. No, there's no question about it. It, it. What you say makes makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there are images, clearly, of all of these horror films that when you project them onto today, there's a continuity in all of that. And we will get back and talk to our special guest, uh, Dr. Kendall Phillips, about uh, culture, anthropology, and the impacts of horror on the American scene and the international scene right after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. 
this is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back with a very unique episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And as many of you know, we are getting into what's commonly called the holiday season, which is normally introduced into, into the scene by, of course, Halloween, which is coming up. It's sort of creeping into us and raises creepy images, as you will. And, and um, my guest is Dr. Kendall Phillips, who is a professor of communication and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University, and he also holds positions uh, at Massey University in New Zealand and York, St. John's University in the UK. Um, we have been discussing the evolution of the earliest uh, horror films, the images, of course, of Dracula and uh, Frankenstein and, to some degree, the werewolf. But, of course, one of, one of the most direct images that we have in one of the major films that is from that time frame and that brings us into archaeology is, of course, The Mummy. And I would love to hear your explanation on how the mummy and Egyptian archaeology sort of get involved in all of this. I have these images of uh, of uh, Boris Karloff and the mummy and uh, some, some shots that I think might have been from Howard Carter's excavations that were thrown into that movie, but you would know much more about that than I because they're, um, they, they look like they're dated shots from that period. Why don't you give us a little bit of how that, of an explanation as, as to how that cre- creeps into the scenario, if you will, pardon the pun. <laughs> That's a great pun. Um, I, I think it's quite fascinating. Actually, archaeology has a role in a number of early films, even even before the mummy. Uh, and in fact, arguably the the first sort of mummy film is is a short Georges Méliès film from about 1903 uh, called The Monster. Uh, it's just a simple trick film with a pharaoh and a big you know sort of faux sphinx backdrop and a magician <laughs> doing tricks of turning bones into a beautiful woman and into a mummy and back into a beautiful woman. And that, that iconography gets picked up. And, and of course, as American, as, as your audience will know much better than I, uh, as America becomes kind of Egypt crazy around the turn of the, into the 20th century, uh, all things Egypt become fascinating and exotic. Uh, there are a number of early uh, silent films, including a, a 1911 film called She, uh, that mm-hmm. focused on something like the mummy character, uh, promising eternal life, but then in the end sort of being killed because of their moral corruption. So there's, there's actually a long-standing tradition that dates way back before the mummy of finding Egypt and Egyptology and the uncovering of ancient relics a kind of unique source for horror. Right. And so how does that, uh, yeah, right, that, that it clearly is because there's this obsession, of course, in Egypt and in Egyptology, and it continues today, of the entire question of tombs and burials and graves and symbolism and the, the iconography, which is obviously so fascinating. And while we understand a lot more now than we did before, it's still rem- there are still some very problematic issues associated. And of course, there is transformation of the dead, which is something that fascinates everybody and how would you characterize the emergence and the development of that in the Egyptian horror films and and where do they go? Yeah, I think, I mean, to, in my read of it at least, a big part of this is that, that certainly in that period of the late teens and into the 20s, 
during that period we were talking about earlier in which Americans are very anxious about immigration and very anxious about uh, social integration and being too diffused in too many different cultures, there's a move in American film to make the foreign or exotic kind of strange and dangerous. And so Egypt and India both become sort of uh, placeholders for the strange, exotic sort of third world or developing world. Uh, and so there's a lot of kind of projection of fear and anxiety and danger and this kind of pseudo-mysticism onto those cultures so that they are always already exotic and therefore not American. You know, mm. American things are rational and scientific, and they make sense, and the dead stay dead. But once you go into Egypt or India or the Far East, suddenly all of these laws of logic start to fall apart. And I think it's kind of constructing that uniquely kind of ethnocentric notion of American uh, exceptionalism, that, that we're somehow separate and different than those backward, you know, uh, superstitious, mysterious people from over there, wherever there right. is. Right, and and obviously the eternal suspicion of the other, exactly. um, which was which sort of represents something that's intimidating, something that's alien, certainly to the dominant uh, Anglo Anglo culture, and certainly at that time. But my question to you is. If it's an immigration issue, and if it's a fear of that, uh, I would think that it would reflect certainly the waves of immigration that uh, occurred immediately prior to the 30s and even a little bit afterward. And that's certainly not from the Middle East it's, or, or from India. It was more from Europe, which is where this entire imagery of, of Dracula comes in to some degree. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, these are like values of, of an other, if you will, that really hadn't made any inroads so far? But w or was it just anticipating and being so apprehensive that it was all lumped together? I think, I, think it, I think to some extent they're lumped together. I think the other part, though, is if you think about Dracula and Frankenstein as kind of being your European-based monsters, um, right. there's a bit more of a kind of invasive sense, particularly Dracula. You know, Dracula comes from Transylvania to London at which point he's planning to spread his infectious disease, which, of course, fits yes. exactly with all the paranoid fear yes. of immigration. Yes, exactly. of course. Right. When I think about the mummy films prior to and then certainly by the time you get to the 30s, what's interesting is the mummy films are usually provoked by Americans going over there to dig something up like many of your audience members will be doing, digging up sure. strange things and bringing them back. So there's almost a kind of, you know, the other part of this American psyche at the time is this is still in the era of American isolationism. And there's still a dominant strand of Americans who did not want to go into the First World War, who thought going into the First World War was a mistake, and who actively resisted going into the Second World War until finally Pearl Harbor uh, made that impossible. So I think something wrapped up in the mummy mythology is a kind of fear of Americans going abroad and opening up old ancient tombs, whether those are literal or metaphoric, that then release something that comes back to us. And that is the theme, obviously, exactly. of the mummy film. Once you open it, it's like the genie is let out of the bottle, effectively, and you have no control. And I think that's it makes sense what you say. Now, now it's done. Now it's out. So we have to do everything we can to keep it to keep it in. And uh, if you look at some of these films and the mummy and the follow ups follow ups to the mummy certainly deal with that with a pervasive theme of no, don't go in. Yes, go in. And curiosity always win, wins out. And they're, they're 
opened up uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but but fast forward this a little bit, and then getting into more of the, the the genre, it seems to me now I'm probably older than you are. I'm sure I'm older than you are. But then all of a sudden, in the fifties and sixties, these things become campy. Yes, they become. Uh, so bad that they're good kind of a situation. And, and, and they're starting to sort of, we're starting to poke fun at this kind of a mentality when basically, certainly in terms of uh, economics and certainly of geopolitics, this is where America has just sort of climbed the mountain and become the main, the, the dominating power. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, a lot of these movies, many of which are British, um, because that's that's where a lot of that tradition sort of come in. Then all of a sudden it becomes you love to laugh about it. Tell us about a little bit about that pathway, which I guess would go from the early '40s and into the '60s and then later. Absolutely, yeah, I think that period from roughly '48 till I'd say '68 is, is exactly as you suggest. The American-made films tended to be cheaper, largely by independent studios, usually aimed at teenagers. That's the other thing, you know, is during yeah. the '50s you suddenly get this new audience emerging. Right. And so there are things like The Blob or Invasion from Mar- Invaders from Mars, uh, The Thing from Another World. Uh, the themes, of course, shift. Now it's about invasion, which makes sense to Cold War America. And it's about space monsters instead of ghosts, which makes sense to newly scientific America. Uh, right. But it's still about that fear. The aesthetic changes because suddenly it's a different kind of audience. Um, but then in 68, things start to change again as the horror films take on a much darker hue when you've got yes. films like Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Suddenly, again, the culture kind of shifts in 68 to a much, much darker period. Right, but you had all those campy films, all those Peter Cushing films where, like, the Dracula right. theme is like his nephew, and then, of course, it's too, too, uh, it's been such a long time since the original Dracula that, that you had... Uh, just the extended, it seemed like the extended family of those of those crazy monsters from the 30s. But then, of course, like you say, it goes into a very dark epoch. And how, again, would you tie that into the anthropology and the archaeology of that time frame? Is there a way to do that? No, I think certainly in terms of sort of the cultural shift, I mean, again, to me, like, so if 1931 begins the first golden age of the horror film, 1968 begins the second golden age, and, and it is, again, an incredibly dark year. Uh, it's the year of the, the Tet Offensive, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., of Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, the civil rights uh, riots and, and race riots throughout North and northeastern cities. I mean, it's really a tough year. It and was. again, for some mm-hmm. reason, audiences seem drawn to these really, really dark films like Night of the Living Dead and Last House on the Left. Right, and then all of a sudden you get into, and 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 that was also the time that uh, a little bit later than 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 those spoofs became really big. You know, the uh, the Mel Brooks yeah. movies, uh, those became just hilarious. And uh, how did they like fit? Like a pendulum going from really dark films to kind of campy parodies of those films, then back to really dark films. Right, and then um, and, and then and then projecting it even further. Then um, what what's going on now? How do you how do, how does segue into that a little bit, and how and tie that into uh, what's happening? I mean, the stuff that's going on now is almost otherworldly because uh, they can do so many crazy things with special effects that were impossible to do so many years ago. Where where are we with this? 
Absolutely. I think what they can do, and, and probably the real key, is what they can do very cheaply. So the kind of effects that you or I could do with our iPhone would have taken filmmakers in the 60s or 70s hundreds of thousands of dollars in technology. And they couldn't so do it. They couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Or, or they have to spend an enormous amount of money to try and get anywhere near it. Now, so, you know, what we're seeing now is a shift in the industry where studios are recognizing they can spend minimal amounts of money, uh, you know, a million and a half or, or even several hundred thousand dollars to create a film like Paranormal Activity right. would go on to become what is now the most profitable film in the history of film. Which because is that one? Just a little bit of effects and no-name actors and some creepy setup. Audiences still deeply respond to that kind of gothic, uncanny horror, but it doesn't, you don't have to have Bruce Willis or, you know, whoever. Right. You, you don't need a big-name star. You don't need tons of special effects. You just need clever, tight filmmaking, and that can really connect to audiences. And all you have to do is really manipulate it the right way and cast it the right way and probably better having no-name people with it anyway because um, it, 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 it brings it down to a level that I think probably people can relate to. Um, so, again, the archaeology aspect of it. I guess if you look at the Indiana Jones films, there's that too because that becomes those, those of us who really do practice <laughs> this profession, <laughs> look at, at what this guy is doing, and of course, it's nonsense. I mean, uh, coupled with some very, very clever scientific elements to it, which keep keep the entire thing running along nicely and having has a certain amount of justification, but you get into potentially horror-like situations. And I sure, guess I that's... Think, that's uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Absolutely. No, I, think, I think the archaeologist hero... I, I, I appears more, it's fairly common in horror. I wouldn't say overly common, but, and if you think about it, the archaeologist hero as the archetype, like Indiana Jones or, or any number of others, is a, is, a, is a person of science, usually a man of science, but who also is familiar with the arcane and the mystical and the magical, but he's also a man of action. And right. that triangle creates this kind of idealized American hero who's as comfortable in a, in a laboratory as they are in some sort of strange mystical castle, and they're always ready with their whip or their gun to take pragmatic action. So I'm not surprised that we see you know, those kinds of characters often as the protagonist, at least in some kinds of horror film. It, it's absolutely true. It's an excellent observation. And, and, of course, that spiritual element to it, ancient texts, ancient religions, right. of course, this goes back to Egypt, to Mesopotamia, and to a larger degree, uh, Mesoamerica and the Maya, which, for some reason, have not, the Maya have not really extended or stepped out into into the horror scene as far as I can see. It's still the same old, you know, it's what they used to call the usual suspects. It's always Egyptian stuff and it's some things happening. I guess more somewhat in South America and Peru, but for some reason the Maya don't really very often get involved in that. Um, I, I wonder what, what your thoughts are about that. Hello? Yeah, it is interesting that the, our focus on horror is rarely near our neighbors. Uh, yes. You don't get as much horror set in Canada or Mexico. Uh, there have been a few films mo normally focused on tourists who end up in some strange archaeological dig. There was a film a couple years ago called The Relic. Uh, there's a film called The Ruin where things come from Latin America or people go to Latin America. But it is 
some reason, our notion of the exotic is still focused on the Far East, on India, on Asia, on the subcontinent. That, that still is our conception of exotic. And I think you're absolutely right that this is again stepping into uh, another wave of immigration, this time one that actually brings in people from different parts of the region, from different parts of the world, rather, places from these exotic territories that aren't Europeans. And it probably resonates to some degree with with people here. And I think as the society becomes much more open, we're starting to laugh at it a little bit more and starting to understand that, that there's a very interesting sort of an integration between symbolism and immigration and, and uh, the ability of archaeology to cast uh, a fair amount of knowledge into these things. There's also um, a new wave, I think, of looking at prehistoric people with a certain amount of fascination and likening them to monster not monsters, let's say, but certainly exaggerating the differentiation of their features from what they actually looked like and what uh, what, what they actually um, the way they're they're depicted in in cinema and of course you know the 2001 Space Odyssey kind of stuff that 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 always comes to mind and and uh, what is it playing with it's not called playing with fire what what was the name of that film quest for fire is quest for fire sure yeah. that also calls to mind and and is parallel with the uh, emerging interest of uh, early hominids and and what they looked like and how they evolved and uh, certainly throwing in that scientific element of using fire which which certainly goes back to that time we will uh, continue with this very fascinating discussion with dr kendall Phillip, phillips who is the professor of of communication and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University after these words. Stay riveted. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com there are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Most successful people have a strategy for their personal and professional advancement. They understand the value of learning from other people who know how to reach their goals and enjoy their lives. You can live life on your terms at home, work, play, and in the community. Join Lori and industry leaders as they share practical insights with you. Only on In It Together with Lori Lynn Green. Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our very unique topic for this evening is the entire question of the convergence of horror films in historical perspective and in contemporary perspective and archaeology. And uh, my guest is Dr. Kendall Phillips of Syracuse University. During the break, we were talking about possibly the most influential merging of archaeology and horror films, which... Uh, he reminded me of it, and it's a, a critical film called The Exorcist. Why don't you uh, develop that one and, and uh, try to link together the horror elements and the archaeological component of that? Absolutely happy to. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about, about The Exorcist and, and, and other iconic horror films uh, is the degree to which people remember them in fragments. Uh, I was talking to a student of mine today about Psycho, and she said, well, I've never seen Psycho, but I know all the important pieces. You know, and I thought, there's, the whole thing is important. You can't just pick the shower scene. And so when you think about The Exorcist, of course, we all remember the iconic, uh, you know, the arrival and the poster and, of course, the pea soup and the head spinning and all the kind of vulgarity. What people often forget, you know, it's, it's a very interesting film in a lot of ways, but it begins with this kind of slow and, and eerie archaeological dig. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Marin, who will come back later in the film as the exorcist, Max, Max Vincito's uh, character, um, he is in a dig that I believe is in Iraq. Uh, yeah. And he's in an archaeological dig, and he uncovers this sort of iconic evil uh, statuette. And then we see him standing, and the dogs are barking, and it's all atmospheric, and there's no real explanation. Then later he's in his uh, study looking at this uh, piece of, uh, of, of this relic, and the clock suddenly stops. Right. And then the scene shifts to Georgetown, Washington, D.C., and we get to see uh, Linda Blair as a little girl, and then the rest of the film starts. So there's clearly some effort being made in, in that film to connect what will happen with the possession of Reagan and, and, and the exorcism to deeper, more cosmic, more primal, ancient struggles. And that archaeology and the fact that Marin is an archaeologist, I think is quite crucial to the development of the film. It seems to be, you're right. And I guess in, in many of these films, it starts that way. That because it's sort of, uh, and, and it goes back to, to The Mummy, and it goes back to some of these earlier films, where you're sort of unleashing the spirits, if you will. And you're bringing them out, and it sort of has to be the early part of the film, because then the rest of it just takes on, again, as we were saying, genies out of the bottle. And then all of a sudden... Um, it's all over the place. And I think the other anthropological component of it, which I think is a point you made really very, very well, is that uh, what you're doing symbolically is you are saying beware of the unknown. And with, in terms of the geopolitics, um, it's very, very clear to immigration issues. And uh, I don't know that I've heard that before. 
Um, and, and I think it's also very much about transgression. You know, it goes back to that ancient mythological folklore, if you go into the sacred woods, you will die. And so in almost all of these films, you know, don't go into the house, don't go into the basement. Uh, Father Marin uncovers this ancient thing, and then evil is released into the world. Uh, in The Exorcist, Reagan plays with the Ouija board, and that right. unleashes. So there is that kind of deep mythology that says if you transgress, these things are going to follow you back out. Right. Which is why you archaeologists should be careful. You're digging in all these tombs. <laughs> Something <laughs> might right. follow you. Something might. The, uh, the other image that uh, for some reason has a very enduring quality. And to me, um, now that I've talked to you and now that you have made this point in a very eloquent fashion, it's, it just seems to be everywhere, is this entire concept uh, probably most directly identified with the the Dracula syndrome of the villagers coming together with the pitchforks. I mean, that's one that just doesn't go away. No. And Mel Brooks is just really good with this because in Young Frankenstein, he's 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 sort of culls all these images and makes them into sort of a farcical situation. But everywhere you go, there's always that image. What about that? It, 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 it really has a deep, long history. If, if people have not seen the, the original fan of the opera, uh, it has a really extended sequence of a large group of villagers uh, coming to, or I guess Parisians coming to chase the phantom, and they're all carrying their pitchforks and their, and their uh, torches. And, and certainly uh, Frankenstein, without a doubt, when I, and I teach Frankenstein to the students uh, often in my history of film class, uh, the, the scene that disturbs them the most is the villagers coming to burn down the windmill and kill the monster. It, it's really powerful, mm-hmm. and certainly I think in 1931 would have connected to so many of the race riots that, that were going on, lynchings, um, certainly the kind of rise of fascism in Germany. So horror kind of tells you you're not safe on your own, but you're also not safe with a group of people. <laughs> they, they, they can be just as dangerous as, as being alone in the woods. That's right. And it played itself out in the 30s as reality. Absolutely. You've got to right. think that people it watching just, Frankenstein in 1931, seeing those angry, ugly, furious villagers, must have felt the resonance with that as they saw the rise of fascism in, in Germany and, and, and Italy. And Italy, absolutely. There's no question now that you mentioned it. It just seems like it translated in a very eerie way and that the positivity and sort of the humor and the dramatic elements of these things were actually transmogrified into the negativity and the horror and uh, and, and called up essentially the basest instincts of the human condition. It's, yeah, uh, it's quite frightening is, to some degree, I guess. I mean, absolutely. No, I, I think of horror in some ways functioning as a kind of cultural barometer. Uh, it tells us when the tensions and the negativity and the ang- anger and anxiety is rising. It also kind of gives us a sense of where it's aimed. You know, it, it, it's usually allegorical or at least you know uh, uh, oblique in its reference. So they don't say we're afraid of immigrants. They say we're afraid of vampires who just happen to be from Eastern Europe. But there's definitely, and I think this is part of what makes it an interesting cultural artifact for me, there's a reason we fear things and we project them onto screens. So, so let's, let's fast forward this big time to the contemporary obsession. That, and, and again, I'm not tuned into this as much as you are anymore. You know, I, I, I still 
sort of uh, spend some time looking at those old black and whites. But <laughs> what is this obsession with the monsters, not with the monsters, but with the vampires and the zombies? And how many different ways can you interpret this now? Because when I've tried to watch these things, I'm flummoxed. I don't understand where it goes. And I really don't know what the hidden message here is. And some of the kids are just really obsessed with it, and they love it. What no, is absolutely. Um, I mean, th- I think they're slightly different angles. I mean, certainly the vampire has become much more connected, although it was always connected to notions of desire and sensuality. Uh, and so, you know, mm-hmm. the Twilight series is, is clearly just a reference to teenage sexuality and abstinence. Uh, just as Twilight, or just as True Blood, which was mm-hmm. a very popular show on HBO, was very much about uh, about sexual transgressions and, and queer identity and LGBT issues and the idea of the blood, etc. So I think the vampire became deeply coded with the idea of sexual desire. Um, and, you know, zombies, on the other hand, are not so sexy. Right, right. But would you say that the, the, there's still both of these waves seem to dominate the, the small and the large screens? I mean, these movies draw a tremendous appeal, and they have a lot of appeal. And uh, like you say, they seem to be looking at different ends of the a spectrum. The, the vampires clearly with a sensual overtone, and if you look at it even in the 30s, they had it for that time. And uh, the, well, what about the zombies? I don't, I don't get that part. See, I, I guess arguably if, if the vampire is about life and death and therefore about sex, which is the primal life energy, then the zombie is primarily about death and erosion and that, you know, even in, in, in reality we know whatever you or I do or the audience does, we will be replaced, we'll be obliterated, we will disappear and a new generation will rise up. And so in some ways the zombie is very much about that fear of obliteration. It is we will be devoured by the future and the future is going to take us right. and, you know, and we're going to be gone. And so if you look at, you know, again, the, the zombie as currently articulated really goes back to George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And it's almost always been right. the fear is not, the horror in the zombie movie is rarely the zombie. The horror in the zombie movie is what the zombie gets us to do. And we turn on right. each other and we kill each other. Yeah. And we, so if you watch The Walking Dead, it's very much, That's right. zombies and are always a danger, but it's the people who are really evil. <laughs> but then again, it gets back into this, uh, it, this contemporary interpretation, which is mass hysteria. Mass hysteria starts from very, very simple origins. And then all of a sudden, uh, you have a few leaders who are uh, enunciating these concerns and then a tremendous number of followers who say, yeah, that's the, that's the cause of our problems. These other people or these other influences, or again, as we said before, uh, immigration, that's our problem. And then it, it evolves into mass hysteria. And what you're saying, it just displaces itself into the contemporary reality and finds new uh, aggressors and victims, if you will, right? Is that where it is? I think very much. I mean, we're definitely living in the post-9-11 culture, and 9-11 you know, clearly had a huge impact on American psyche. And the, the, I think the zombie films are in some ways part of a response to that. I also think that spate of films that were in the kind of early 2000s that people often called torture porn, so films like Saw, <laughs> right. Hostel. You know, if you think about the movie Saw or, or Hostel, each of those films basically asked the question, how far would you go, how brutal will you be to survive? Right. Which is very much the question in a television show like The Walking Dead. 
Mm-hmm. And that is, in some ways, quite bluntly, the question we were asked as a country after 9-11. How far would we go to protect ourselves in terms of right. military response, in terms of giving up privacy and civil liberties? I mean, th- that was the political question. And so no, no particular surprise that that political question has seeped into our popular culture. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end this very, very fascinating discussion with my guest, Dr. Kendall Phillips. Thanks so much for participating. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. And until next time, uh, tune in next week. Uh, Have a wonderful week, and we will see you again or listen to you, or you can listen to us on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good night. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.